Just as a matter of brief review, we're going through some of the difficulties that David and uh, others had, that Christ had in his lifetime, and certainly it is a prophecy for today of the difficulties, trials, and troubles that we would be going through in these first two uh, sections of the book of Psalms, which is divided into five parts. Now, as a brief review in chapter 45, it was talking here toward the end of the chapter about hearkening or listening uh, the daughter of Zion. Uh, we know from other scriptures that there would be daughters of Zion here at the end time, that the church would be scattered into many different pieces, and God refers to them in that sense as the daughters. And Proverbs 31 indicates the virtuosity that he is seeking in each of those daughters, uh, the kind of approach and attitude that would be had by the people he is looking for to lead his church and those that he calls together from all over the world and the various branches of the church, the various daughters or sisters. But one, he is going to adjudge the fairest of them all, the most beautiful inside, spiritually. It's not necessarily physical, because uh, edifices and buildings and fancy things that we might build really mean nothing unless the beauty is on the interior. So he addresses that here and said that he greatly desires her beauty, and it certainly it is our hope that we can be a part of this one. And the virgins, her companions, in verse 14, that follow her shall be brought to God. So God is going to select one of the daughters, or virgins, as he calls them, of Zion, or of Jerusalem. We just heard about that in Hebrews 12, where he says, We approach Zion and Mount and Jerusalem, the heavenly city. Uh, so the physical city on the earth and physical Zion are only a type of that which was come from heaven. And we are to be a part of that if we qualify to be a part of the bride of Christ. So what he is speaking of here is not only for that time, but it is a prophecy for today very much so. He said in verse 17, I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise you forever and ever. So those whom God uses to do the end time work and those who make up the finality of the 144,000 uh, will be remembered forevermore. You know, we'll reign a thousand years with Christ, Revelation 5.10, and the inheritance is an eternal inheritance. So God is looking forward here. Then in chapter 46, it comes back to the present. It projects at the end of chapter 45 what shall be, and then brings us back to where we are today, <clears throat> in which we need what he says here in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, there is already trouble within the church and a great deal of consternation and confusion, and that is beginning to happen in our nation and the world because of the very obvious financial collapse that is about to occur. And I'm reading on the Internet various articles that people are pinning or writing about what do you do? How do you escape all this? 
Some are advocating leaving the country. And then another one in a comment said, well, you can go to these other countries, but this is a global thing. Those who want to rule the world are wanting to rule the whole world. So escaping the United States doesn't necessarily provide an answer for you. So there's a great deal of confusion out there with people who see this coming apart from God and apart from the Bible. They're looking at it from, many of them, a physical standpoint. And they see the things happening to our country that happened to the Roman Empire and the Babylonian Empire and all other empires of the past. We are falling apart and soon to be militarily conquered. Most of them don't yet see that. They see trouble coming, but they think ten years from now, if you save gold and silver, you'll be fine. They don't recognize what God is going to do and what He is going to allow Satan in the new world order to do. So He brings us back to where we are, looking right down the barrel of these things right in front of us. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Ecuador or Costa Rica is not the answer. A South Sea island isn't. God only is. He is the refuge. And He is very present. So He is looking after and looking to those that will serve Him and look to Him for a refuge. Therefore, will not we fear? If we have faith, trust, and God Almighty, as these things start coming down around us, we have nothing to fear. Though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, no matter how bad it gets, and this could be literal with earthquakes, volcanoes, and various upheavals in the earth's crust. It could also be figurative of nations, hills and mountains, the sea of people that is about to be shaken up from one end to the other. I think that both meanings are certainly there. And he says, stop and think about this. There is great tumult ahead. But those who trust in God, who follow Him, have nothing to worry about. And he goes on to say, There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. Now we know from Psalm 132, 13 and 14, I'll not turn there, and from Matthew 5:35, and from various scriptures in Deuteronomy and so on, that he has chosen Jerusalem. Now, that is a physical city on the earth, which is also a type of the heavenly. And when the heavenly comes down, it is very clear in Revelation that a river will come out from under the throne of God and be used to heal the nations. But ancient Jerusalem, I think the true Jerusalem, uh, is going to be regenerated here at the end. And a river will come out from under the temple, as Ezekiel says from that physical temple, because everything done here in the end time is a type of what shall be. So that is a type and a witness to the world of where the new world order is going to come from. 
So, if you will, God sets up a small world order while Satan and the beast are setting up a huge new world order. And God will use it to show what is to be. And, of course, this new world order we are about to see is going to hate it with a passion. But there is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God. So even the physical Jerusalem here at the end, uh, it appears, will have a river. Ezekiel backs that up. The holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High God. And it says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Now eternally, that is certainly the case in Revelation 21 and 22. However, we see in Zechariah 2, 3, and 4, among other scriptures, and that one I bring up because it is strictly dated. The timeline of Zechariah 1 through 6 is of the end-time gathering and of the two witnesses on the earth, the sons of oil mentioned in Revelation 11, and mentioned only otherwise in Zechariah 4. So, the timing there is that God says that Christ will come and dwell in the midst of her. And truly, we use today Emmanuel more as a prophecy and what we hope shall be soon than we do as a reality because God still has his face turned from the church and from our nation to one degree or another. But he is beginning to respond to those who are responding to him. And he will wipe out our sins in one day, as it says at the end of Zechariah 3 and in Isaiah 54, it is, I believe, as a cloud there. So the reality is, this is a dual prophecy. It's a prophecy of the end time when it says, In that day, last verse of Zechariah 3, shall every man have his own vine and fig tree. So, it's not just millennial, but prior to that, when God begins to gather the remnant of the church, as Haggai shows, <coughs> and then explains in detail the leadership in Zechariah 1 through 6. And there it says that Christ will come and dwell in the midst of us. I know we know these things, <coughs> and have been over those scriptures many times. However, I think it is good, as we go through the Psalms, to see these things borne out there. Then we can back them up with something which has a definite timeline, such as Haggai and Zechariah, to show that it's not just millennial, but it has a physical application on a small scale here at the end time. You might tie in Zechariah 2, I think, if I can read my own writing, verse is that 10 or 12, uh, where it says that Christ will come and live in our midst. And it says, God shall help her, and that right early. So, I think the right early means there, as these things start coming down upon us, God will begin to gather His people and help them early in the process. It won't be right at the very end of all these tumultuous things, but right early. Now, I might recall to us the story of Israel coming out of Egypt and how they stayed there through the first three plagues. Well, they stayed there through all ten, but I mean, they only 
participated in the first three. And then God made a separation and a difference for the last seven. So, if you think of that in terms of this statement here in verse 5, it was right early in the process of destroying the Mitzrayim or Egyptian empire that God made a separation for Israel. Now, I think that we are going through some of the unemployment, some of the difficulties, and the dysfunction of our country as it begins to fall apart, and how far we will go into that remains to be seen. But based on the past, and based on how God has done things, and He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and still thinks the same way and reacts the same ways that He did in the past, that He will allow us to go through a certain amount of what is to come, and then He will make a separation right early in the process. Whether after 30% of it, as in the case of ancient Israel, or what remains to be seen, but certainly the early stages, and perhaps even as it begins to get somewhat tempestuous, we may go through a part of it until he makes that separation right early. There are other scriptures that say we will turn to him early in the process. I think Hosea uh, comes to mind, perhaps Jeremiah. Anyway, he says he'll help her right early. In verse 6, it says, The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved, he uttered his voice, the earth melted. So he's speaking of that time of when the day of the Lord is coming upon us, as Joel talks about, as Isaiah 24 talks about, many, many scriptures about the day of the Lord and how tempestuous and tumultuous it will be. So the heathen are going to be raging, and we're beginning to see that now uh, all around the world. Civil wars, wars against government, government against people, uh, and on and on it goes, and one country against another, and the United States against almost everybody we decide to bomb as the hammer of the whole earth or the modern-day Babylon of today. So the heathen are raging, and the kingdoms are beginning to be moved uh, through these civil wars and so on that we see. Well, then God utters His voice, and everything just melts there's no power that can stand up against that. And by the end of the tribulation, that will have occurred. Meanwhile, the new world order will take hold, and the whole world will worship the beast. That's the way it's going to be. So, we look to being protected by God as our refuge in all of this. So, as the earth begins to do the melting process... It says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Stop and think about it. Selah. This is the bottom line of all that is about to come down. We look to God. He is the only one who can save us. Come, behold the works of the eternal. What desolations he has made in the earth. So this is a prophecy of what is about to happen. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in sunder. He burns the chariot in the fire. So all these people on the earth who are going to be depending upon their military might 
and their capacity to control all the peasants through military strength are going to be broken before God, before it ultimately, or at the ultimate end of it all. So they can't stand against him. Christ will come back, his sword dipped in blood, riding on a white horse with his saints with him when they come back from the wedding supper, or from the year of, of honeymoon, actually. Be still and know that I am God. So he tells us, you see all this, but stop, be still, think about it, and recognize where help and hope come from. Because in this world there is none. And even those who are aware of what is about to happen are casting about in consternation, trying to figure out what to do. Because they see that the sky is falling. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The eternal of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Again, Stop and think about it. So three times he says that in this one chapter. There's only one way to have protection and help from what is to come, and that's to be close to God. And to pray that we be accounted worthy to escape all these things that are coming. He wants to help us. He is very present in the time of trouble. He deeply wants us to be virtuous and to be that daughter that he can work through. Moving on to chapter 47. Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. So he says he's going to make an end to all the war and frustration that will be on the earth in the next few years. But we will triumph in the end if we serve him. For the eternal Most High is terrible, and terrible doesn't mean the way we might think, but powerful and strong and beyond anyone's consideration in terms of what he is able to do. A mighty work would be a more modern term rather than a terrible work. He is a great king over all the earth. So this again is projecting to the millennium, when he will be king over all the earth. The Psalms are a very, very prophetic book. There is no time that he has been king over the entire earth. When he was here as a human being, he did not fulfill that responsibility. And he even told people that. It is still a future projection. He shall subdue the people under us. Interesting. He will rule the earth with a rod of iron, but it says we shall reign with him, and he will subdue it under us. He will put the leadership in us, through us, and all the peoples of the earth under us, as his wife, as his bride, as his co-rulers, or his queen, <clears throat> and the nations under our feet. Malachi, as an end-time book, says that the nations will become ashes under our feet. 
He shall choose our inheritance for us. Isn't it nice to know that God who can do anything and has created this beautiful earth and this universe is the one who will appoint our inheritance. It is an inheritance of eternal life, of peace, prosperity, love, hope, and joy, and all the fruit of his spirit forevermore. What an inheritance he has for us. The excellency of Jacob, whom he loved. Just think about this. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, were one of the nations of Jacob here on, in this country. And anyone who becomes a part of spiritual Israel today becomes a spiritual Jew or a son of Jacob. No matter what tribe we might be of or what Gentile country we might come from, we all come to be of Jacob. God has gone up with a shout, the eternal with the sound of a trumpet. So he comes what? At the last trump. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises unto our King. Sing praises. We need to make singing praise to God at the beginning, the middle, end of our service, our Bible study, or when we get together to sing praises to God. He loves to hear that. says it three times in one verse. And he says it all through the Psalms as we get further into it. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing you praises with understanding. Or in my margin it says, for everyone that has understanding. And very few people on the face of this earth understand what is about to come down. We are among the privileged few that God has called out and taught His way and His truth and what the future holds. God reigns over the heathen. God sits upon the throne of His holiness. Again, this is all prophetic. It is not true today. Satan is still the prince of the power of the air and the ruler of this present evil world and will be until Christ comes and deposes him. He's already qualified to do it by defeating him after the 40-day fast, but he has not yet come to take that rule. If he has, why don't we see peace, prosperity, love, kindness, and gentleness among all people, and no swords and bombs and planes of war? Why don't we see swords and spears as pruning hooks and plows. It hasn't happened yet. There are people who have broken off from, or consider themselves perhaps still part of the church of God, who think the millennium is here and that Christ is already here reigning. If that be the case, I don't want to be a part of the kingdom of God. Because if this is what it's going to be like forevermore, I'll pass thank you. No, he's not here yet. The millennium is not here yet. The new world order and the so-called millennium that Satan thinks he is going to set up for a thousand years is not even yet here, much less Christ's reign. Of course, Satan and the new world order aren't going to last as long as they think they are. But they will bill it that way, that we'll have peace forevermore with us in charge and you peasants doing the work. So this is decidedly prophecy. 
The princes of the world are gathered together, even the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. So the people of Abraham who will obey God are going to be gathered together and he will be their shield, their refuge. Chapter 48, great is the eternal and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in the mountain of his holiness. Again, Hebrews 12, 22 and 3 shows the church as the spiritual organism. Revelation 21 shows the bride of Christ to be the church coming as the heavenly Jerusalem. But in the meantime, he has chosen physical Jerusalem and Zion as a figure or a metaphor of that which is to come. And those things still physically exist on the earth. And he calls it the mountain of his holiness. And notice the description here. Verse 2 says, beautiful for situation. Now, the word there in Hebrew is number 5131 in Strong's, which says elevation. That is the only definition given. Beautiful for elevation. Very high, in other words. Now, why did they translate a word which only has one definition in Hebrew? Why did they translate it situation? The only thing I can come up for on that is that the Zion in the Middle East, Jerusalem, is not high. It is not elevated. So... They translated it situation, which doesn't fit the Hebrew, but fits their view of what Zion is. (coughs) Is there a problem with that? I think so, because it destroys the Hebrew. Look it up. Beautiful for elevation. The joy of the whole earth. I looked this up to see what the commentaries had to say about it. And... They said scholars have scratched their heads, I'm paraphrasing, trying to figure out how the Zion of the Jerusalem in the Middle East could be the joy of the whole earth, based on its position, its elevation, its description in various places in the Psalm and throughout Psalms and throughout the Bible. They read those things and they try to apply it to the southeastern or southwestern hill over there, and it doesn't fit. So they translate based on what they think could be. Look up Wikipedia, look up Zion, and see what it says about it. Shows three places that they are trying to figure out where Zion is. Some say it's the southwestern hill at the bottom of Jerusalem. Some say it's the southeastern hill. And there is so much confusion about where Zion is over there that some of the scholars, it says right there in Wikipedia, have decided that it is probably only a figurative thing. That there was no literal, physical Zion. It was just a type of something to come. That is how much trouble they have 
determining what they think was the location of Zion within that Jerusalem. I found that very interesting. So some say it's here, some say it's here, but they don't know. The joy of the whole earth. So Zion, wherever it may be, has to be pretty spectacular. Something that you would look to as a beautiful place and an elevated place. On the sides of the north, now what does that mean? The city of the great king. On the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Now in our hymn book, Dwight Armstrong translated it or wrote it down in the hymn that we sing that Mount, uh, let's see, now, now I can't say it. The city of the mighty king does on her north side stand, is the way he put it. So Jerusalem is on the north side of Zion. Now, he took that from this particular verse. Now, I looked up various translations of the Bible on this, and some put it that Jerusalem is north of Zion, and some put it that Zion is north of Jerusalem. So I looked up sides in the Hebrew that's number 3411, and it means the flank, not necessarily the side, but a side of a mountain or a flank of a mountain is what is being described here. Uh, on the flank of the north is the city of the great king. Now, even in Jerusalem over there, most of them say that Zion is on the south end, and that the city then is essentially north of Zion. Uh, that's what they see there. Now, that's what I see where I think the true Zion, the original, and the original true Jerusalem are, is that it is on the north flank of the mountains, or on the flank of the mountains north of Zion. That seems to be the sense of this when you put uh, the Hebrew into it. And where I think Jerusalem is, is on the flank or the slope down from the mountains and kind of out away from as, as the mountain curls down. That's the flank or the side of the mountain. It's just about at the base of it <clears throat> and has the foothills that lead up to the mountains within it. We'll get into that more when we get into the series on it, but since we hit this, I wanted to uh, talk about it a little bit. But the Zion we're looking for is obviously an elevated place, and it appears Jerusalem would be to the north flank or the side of the mountain to the north of it. For lo, the kings were assembled. Oh, wait a minute. Verse 3, I missed. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. If he's going to be our refuge, which we've been reading about today, then the refuge is going to be in and about Jerusalem and in and about Zion. Hmm, interesting. People want to go to Jerusalem in the church, and then they think they're going to flee to Petra. Well, Petra is not Zion. From everything that the world thinks they understand, and the church ever thought it understood, 
Jerusalem and Zion are right there on the same little hill. It's not really a mountain, but on top of the hill there. And the, the height around it, around Jerusalem, only goes up two or three hundred feet. is as high as the so-called mountains get around Jerusalem. Or that Jerusalem, anyway. But that is to be the place of refuge. Jerusalem and Zion. You'll see that throughout. And her palaces... For lo, the kings were assembled, they passed by together, they saw it, and so they marveled, they were troubled, and ran away. They're going to hate what God is about to do in the true Jerusalem and the true Zion, (coughs) and they will fear, and they will run from the presence of God who will be a wall of fire and a defense around it. Again, quoting from the timeline of Zechariah 3 and 4, the two witnesses and the remnant gathered of the church. Fear took hold upon them there, and pain as of a woman in travail. So they're going to be like a woman in childbirth, it says. That's how much it's going to scare them. Be very painful for them. They will hate it with a passion. You, speaking of God, break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. God will protect and defend. And this is by ship. That's interesting. Their ships cannot get to that Jerusalem over there. They can get within 30, 40 miles of it on the coast there in the Mediterranean. But the original Jerusalem had waters around it according to what we read, the former and the hinder sea and so on. We'll not go further into that at the moment, but just a comment in passing. (coughs) As we have heard, so have we seen, in the city of the eternal of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. So, think about this, he says. It's there, he'll use it as an end time uh, symbol against the world and then it will be established forevermore. We have thought of your loving kindness, O God, in the middle of your temple. Of how God has blessed us in the church, and then because of our lack of devotion to Him, He's had to scatter us, but He says He will forgive us in one day and turn back to us and bless us. And that's what we are beginning to look forward to now, And that's why we work so hard on ourselves day by day to try to have right attitudes and right approach and serve God the way He wants to be served and give Him our whole heart. That's what He's looking for in us and that's what it's going to take. And He says when we have accomplished that, He will turn to us again. And He says we will do that right early. So hopefully before long... He will see progress to the point, he says, all right, it's time. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. And righteousness is kind, gentle, loving, helpful, protecting. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. 
Now, God is going to make some judgments. And he says that those who are in Judea at the time when all of this hits are to flee when they see Jerusalem surrounded by armies to Zion. And there he will protect them and be their refuge. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Not the rose-red city of Petra, but Mount Zion. So you flee from Jerusalem to Zion. Now going from that city over there, uh, from one side of the wall to the other, does not constitute getting to the mountains of Judea. If that indeed is where Zion is, then that's what they all think. It's right there. Right there is part of the city. How do you gain by going from one end of a half-mile-wide city to the other when the whole city is surrounded by armies? And what mountains do you flee to? Well, where the true Jerusalem is, I believe, there are mountains nearby to flee to. Very high mountains. So he says, let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah that is, of the church, the spiritual daughters of Judah, be glad because of your judgments. He will judge whom to protect, who will be accounted worthy to escape. And he says, walk about Zion and go round about her. Count or tell, uh, the, the word really should be count in the Hebrew, count the towers thereof. Towers means uh, mountains. It means high, exalted places. Not city towers, but of mountains. Mark you well her bulwarks. Now, bulwarks in the Hebrew is entrenchments or trenches. A military term for entrenching is to dig foxholes and provide a place where you can duck down and the bullets will go over your head instead of into it. So, within the true Zion, you will have towers sticking up and you will have valleys or canyons, entrenchments in which you can duck down and hide, is the symbolism here. Consider her palaces... Now, what does palaces mean? That's number 759 in the concordance. It means elevated, up high, or citadel. A citadel is a bastion. It's a place of protection, a, uh, a, a tower where you can look down and be protected from what might be below. And in the Hebrew definition, it says citadel, or from its height, is where it gets the term citadel, because it sticks up above. You do not find that for the Zion in that Jerusalem in the Middle East. It just is not there. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. He'll be there, even if we suffer death. He can resurrect. He has no problem with that. He's still our God, even if we are dead, and will be our God when we're resurrected. Chapter 49, hear this, all you people, 
Give ear, all you inhabitants of the world. Listen, this is a message for everybody. Not just the church, not just Zion or Jerusalem spiritually, which we've just been talking about. But he has a message also for everyone on the face of the earth. And won't the end time work then be a witness to the whole world? We'll travel over the entire earth to preach the message that we're talking about while God's people are in Zion and protection. Both low and high, rich and poor together, everybody, elite, peasant, whoever. My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. So listen, what you're about to hear, he says, is important. It is true understanding, not just jibber-jabber of men. I will incline my ear to a parable. I will open my dark sayings upon the harp. A parable is something that's hard to understand. The harp is something that is soothing. It is something that is quiet. Something that makes you feel better, that lifts you up. So, we're speaking of things that are somewhat mysterious, or in a parable, and yet the message is one that is of encouragement and hope. Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil, when the iniquity of my heels shall compass me about? The things that I've been doing, where my heels have been walking me, or taking me, and the things that I've been through that are iniquitous, what good is that going to do? But why would I fear, even after where I've been and what I've done, if I have the mystery of God open to me and turn to Him? They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches. We are today in a material society that trusts in riches. And they are scrambling madly about now to try to preserve their wealth as the financial world collapses around them. Shall we buy food? Shall we buy guns? Shall we buy gold and silver? Shall we go to Costa Rica? What shall we do? None of those are the answer. None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. You can't offer a payment or try to hold God hostage or blackmail him into helping your friends and relatives. It won't happen. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceases forever. God will redeem us when he sees fit, and he has offered us redemption now to redeem us from the death that is about to come upon the earth, and those who survive into the millennium will be redeemed at that time. But the vast majority of people who have ever lived from Adam until today will be redeemed in the great white throne judgment. So, making deals with God won't help. He has a plan all set out. He will take care of things in his time and in his way. That he should still live forever and not see corruption. So, eternal life in the new covenant had not been offered at the time the Psalms were written, had it? Christ had not come. He had not died. He had not offered a new covenant 
The old covenant of marriage with Israel had been broken by her and ended in divorce. (coughs) So there was nothing then until a new covenant began to be forged with Christ and the apostles in the early New Testament church and continuing until today. So this very obviously written way back before Christ came is a prophecy. Shall not see corruption. Sounds like 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 10, For he sees that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish, and leave their wealth to others. Now see what he was saying there when he said, Everybody listen to what I have to say. It doesn't matter. Rich or poor, smart or dumb, important or unimportant to men, you're all going to perish. And isn't that really what the message is in Isaiah 40 when it says a voice crying in the wilderness? And he says, what shall I cry? He says, cry that all flesh is as grass and will burn in the sun. So that message, end time message of Isaiah 40 <coughs> is spoken of right here. For he sees that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever, and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Now, is that not what we have done in this country? America has always considered itself impregnable. Once we ran the British out... And took over, we thought that the American Empire would last forever and we could build houses and have them for generation after generation. And indeed, that has been true up until now. But now Isaiah 5 and Zephaniah 1 and other scriptures are beginning to kick in where it says our houses will be taken from us. They will build houses and not live in them. Those two come to mind. There are others that say essentially the same thing, as does this right here. We thought we could have the American dream and pass it on to our children and children's children. And now they're already saying that the financial irresponsibility our children and grandchildren will pay for in poverty. And they don't understand that it's not just that, but it's all coming to an end, and this nation is going to be defeated and taken into captivity. Our houses will indeed be taken away. And even as we sit here today, it is a, an ongoing process already. Millions of mortgages are being called. And people are losing their homes. And it's going to get worse instead of better. And do we call our lands after our own names? Smith Street, Jones Boulevard, whatever. Zechariah has a prophecy where they'll start naming everything after God. And he says they'll even call themselves after God. And use his names instead of their own. So people are going to have a change of attitude once all of this comes down. We'll lose our homes, we'll go into captivity, and if people survive into the millennium, 
they're going to start talking about God and forgetting about Smith Boulevard or whatever, Martin Luther King Boulevard, which is all over the nation now. We won't call streets after our own names, Washington Avenue or, you know, Joe Montana Street, you know, on and on it goes. Nevertheless, man being an honor abides not. He is like the beasts that perish. This their way is their folly, yet their posterity approve their sayings. They say America will last forever, and the kids say, oh yeah, that's true. We'll still be buying iPods ten years from now. No, you won't. I don't know about the ten, but it won't be many. Probably less than that, I would say, the way things are looking. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. And their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. You're going to be taken out of your houses. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to be killed. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Think about it. God is the only answer. He is the only refuge that we have in this end time. It is time, with all our hearts, to turn to God. Because these aren't distant prophecies anymore. They are prophecies, really, I've heard almost all my life. And we looked for signs of them over the decades. But now, it is so obvious that you have to be almost blind not to see what is happening and about to happen. There are still a lot of people that are blind. Verse 16, Be not you afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. If you were one of the celebrities on the earth... Your celebrity doesn't go to the grave with you. You're eventually forgotten, probably very quickly. Though while he lived, he blessed his soul, told himself how wonderful, how good, and how privileged he was, and how important. And men will praise you when you do well to yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light, dead and buried. Man that is in honor and understands not is like the beasts that perish. Now, the only difference between you and me is if we understand and have served God and we die, we'll be in the first resurrection. The rest of mankind die and they're going to stay there for a thousand years until the millennium is finished. So many, many generations, they'll lie in the grave until God sees fit to bring them up and show them the truth. So when he says, everybody listen, the whole world, he's not just talking to the church here. He's talking about the destruction to come and how futile and how vain mankind is. This is a very powerful message, Psalm 49. It is one that I think the two witnesses will preach to the whole world because that's what Isaiah 40 says will happen. What do I cry? Well, cry... Psalm 49, there's a good start. The whole Bible, for that matter, but this encapsulates it pretty well. 
If you're going to go to the world and say, oh, we got this new world order, how long is it going to last? It's going to perish. People will die. Even these who consider themselves elite are like the grass that withers. And God is going to be all in all and bring His kingdom to the earth. So, listen, world will be the message. Chapter 50. We're moving right along today. The mighty God, even the eternal, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof. Well, he just told the whole world to listen in the previous chapter. And there he speaks of his might and he calls or talks to the earth all the way around from the coming up to the going down of the sun, which is, means around the world. All right, he's calling out. Now, what is he going to say here? He said, world, you're going to perish as the grass. Chapter 49. Now he gives some insight about something else that will happen during that time. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shined. So when the earth begins to come apart when men lose their homes and begin to wither as grass, God is going to have a message of beauty shining out from Zion. He has told His people to be the light of the world, to shine from a hill. Mount Zion is the hill that God has chosen as His dwelling that He will shine out of And he will use men, people, to provide that light. That he will dwell there, as Isaiah, I mean, as Zechariah 2 tells us. And the timing, again, is of the two witnesses and the end time gathering of the latter temple at the end of this age. It is not of the millennium and Christ ruling from Jerusalem at that time. The timeline is first out of Zion. God shining with the light of His people. Are we two watt or a hundred watt? We need to learn to shine as best we can to be God's glory to the world. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. He will use the end time work to speak to the world. A fire shall devour before him. Doesn't he even say that out of the mouth of the two witnesses, fire will come and destroy those who try to hurt them? It's all written down here before it had to be spelled out in Revelation 11, isn't it? A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. So God is going to be (coughs) what, he says in Zechariah? A wall of fire around His Jerusalem, around His people to protect them, that they might build the temple, that when the order to give, build Jerusalem is given, they will be there to do it. And it will be a mighty fire in the eyes of the people of this world. They won't like it. It will be very tempestuous. The kings of the earth that we read today already will fear and haste away. 
He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth, that he may judge his people. I find it interesting that through Zion, near us here, physically, there is a highway that runs from west to east, or east to west, whichever way you want to go. It's Highway 9. Utah Highway 9. Nine in the Bible is the number of judgment. So we have, why? Is it just happenstance that through that valley named Zion and those mountains named Zion, you have a street or a highway named Judgment? He's talking out of Zion here. The perfection of God will shine and judgment will come from Zion. He says, He will dwell in Zion. Now that is prior to the millennium and during the millennium both. Let him judge his people. Gather my saints together to me. Where? Zion. Not Petra. I challenge you. Find me in the Bible. Just a handful of references that Peter is the place God is going to protect his people. That where he will be and where judgment will come from. I'd, I'd like to see it. There's you a challenge. Gather my saints to me. Those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Romans 12.1, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We are not here to please ourselves, to gratify ourselves. We are here to serve, to give, to sacrifice our time, our energy, our minds, our will, our purpose to God and to His people. And he says He will judge us by how we interact with His people. Be you warmed and filled, or do we warm and fill? Do we say, I love you, and stab us each other in the back? Or do we show by our words and our action true love? It is a sacrifice to give of oneself for others. And that is what he has called us to, is a life of sacrifice, of giving, serving, and helping, not giving, serving, and helping ourselves. I see right now, when we have one down, physically ill, having all kinds of difficulties, I see a lot of people giving up their time, their energy, and willing to help one who is down. That's what God is talking about. Sacrifice. Give of your time, your energy, yourself to help one another. God thanks you for that sacrifice. And I thank you. And in her way, the one who is the benefit of that sacrifice also thanks you for what is being done. You know... I preach a pretty hard line a lot of the time. And I've shown you that God says it must be done. Cry out 
all flesh is as grass, and cry aloud and spare not and tell my people their sins. And that goes on and on through many scriptures. And that is something that I have to do. But at the same time, there are many, many other scriptures which show that credit should be given where credit is due. And that we should be encouraged when we see the works of faith and sacrifice. And that also has to be part of the message because we need to be encouraged and strengthened in those things that we do. Sure, we're all deceitful and desperately wicked as human beings. And we do have the works of the flesh. And we do all have a darker side. We all strive to do that which is good. And as Paul said, the things I want to do I don't do, and the things I do want to do I can't seem to do. So we all struggle, brethren. But I want you to know that the sacrifices you make, one for another, are not lost on God. He has called you to a covenant of sacrifice. And those who will sacrifice themselves are doing it not only to each other, but Christ says, I take it personally as if you're doing it to me. And he takes note of it. And it builds treasure in heaven. And he wants to gather those who have the attitude of sacrifice and service. One to another. That's how he judges us, he says. Matthew 5 and 6, if you want to go there. Verse 6, And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. What men judge makes no difference. Really, how dare we judge another? How dare we? Because God is the judge. And if we take judgment of another person upon ourselves, we are committing idolatry. We are presuming God's position. That is why he says presumptuousness is as the sin of witchcraft. To presume judgment of another human being is the same as worshiping Satan. That's what he says. We must be very, very careful when we make judgments about each other. How do we know how God views another human being? How can we know? He saw something in every one of us here that caused him to say, I want that one. And if I say, why did you call that one? I'm putting myself in jeopardy. Now I can look at myself and say, why did he call this one? <laughs> and I have to make judgments about me and what I need to do. But even then, we need to be careful. If we castigate ourselves too much and unduly and put ourselves down to the point we become discouraged and frustrated and can't operate 
and sacrifice ourselves for others and live in depression because of how bad we think we are, then we have judged ourselves as unworthy in a wrong way. The balanced, godly way but would be to look at ourselves and see what needs to be changed and then work on it, not be depressed by it. Because He can help us overcome. <clears throat> but you know, you really can't make anybody else overcome, can you? So why do you need to compare yourself to them and make a judgment against them. Because you can't change them anyway. The only one you can really change is you, which then sets an example for them that they might, by the growth they see in you, be inspired to themselves overcome. That is truly the way iron sharpens iron. is by seeing that which is sharp spiritually and being encouraged to sharpen ourselves. We tend to look upon iron sharpening iron, I think, as me taking my axe and hacking at you. That's how it so often comes down. That's not what he's trying to say. We have made a covenant by sacrifice. And those are the ones he once gathered to him. So who will be in this end time gathering? Those who are willing to do a work of sacrifice for each other and for God. That's the ones he needs and wants. It's the ones he's going to gather. And true, when it comes to gathering the first resurrection, not only of this end time, but of the early New Testament church, and those spoken of in Hebrews 13, and others not mentioned, because there wasn't room enough to write them all, Paul said, he'll gather all those who have shown in their lives that they are willing to be a living sacrifice. If you want to know what God's looking for, he encapsulates it, encapsulates it right here in Psalm 50, verse 5. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness. Uh, for God is judge, that's where I left off uh, with the highway running through Zion. Is that coincidence? Perhaps, but I kind of think it was by design that God caused that place to be named Zion and that nearly everything in it is named after something in the Bible or of God. And almost everything in the pit, the Grand Canyon, is named after something pagan. Powers of Zeus and Asperger. Uh, Aspermani, <laughs> I'm thinking of Aspartame, Ashtaroth, I, all of those pagan names. So we have the pit south of us, and we have the heights of Zion just north of us. And we are between the pit and the heights at the moment. And I hope we can attain to the heights instead of falling in the pit. Hear all my people, verse 7, and I will speak. If you'll listen. You know, he gathered them before Mount Sinai. And he said, hear. And they were afraid and didn't want to hear. And they said, Moses, you talk to us. We don't want to hear from God. 
So here's a prophetic context in which God says, listen to me. Now, he may not speak to us vocally, but he certainly speaks to us in this word. And he speaks to us through these words. O Israel, or I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, even your God. Why do we put other things ahead of him when he is truly God? I will not reprove you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of your house, nor he goats out of your foals. For every beast of the forest is mine, and cattle upon a thousand hills. Why would he be interested in animal sacrifice? It doesn't produce righteousness. Only the sacrifice of his son can produce righteousness. The blood of God shed for us. And the resurrected Christ, not the dead one. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. What can you give me, God says. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Even if I was hungry, why would I tell you? I got everything. It's all mine. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows unto the Most High. Don't offer animal sacrifices. Offer thanksgiving to God for all the blessings that we have. It's hard to be depressed and discouraged when you're counting your blessings, isn't it? When you're depressed and discouraged, you are not, I'm sorry, you are not at that point counting your blessings. You're saying, oh, poor, poor, pitiful me. And pity parties are not in style with God. We have to lift ourselves above self-pity and pity others and serve and give and help. Because we're, when we're serving and giving and helping, we are not sitting in a pool of self-pity. Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But unto the wicked, God says, what have you to do? to declare my statutes, or that you should take my covenant in your mouth. If you're going to be wicked, why talk about me? Why have lip service to God like the Pharisees and Sadducees did? <coughs> why be a hypocrite, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? And often we do. We let them drop to the ground or we cast them behind us because of what we want to do. When you saw a thief, then you contended with him, and have been partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil, and your tongue frames deceit. So you take my name, and then you do all these sins. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Our mother is the church, and slandering her sons, God is talking about here. We cannot slander. We cannot judge one another. We must support, help, strengthen each other in love. And I will say this, that we need to change a trend. 
We have had the high standard of God's Word read to us over and over and over, and we have so often fallen into criticizing one another because someone of us, we think, is falling short of the standard of God and therefore is subject to our bad-mouthing, our slandering, our talking behind their backs. And in that we sin, he says. Why call on God? Why say we're the people of God if we slander our brother or our brother in Christ, the church? These things have you done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was altogether like you. Perhaps we think that God thinks just like we do. God forbid that he should think like you and I often think. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we are the ones who do not measure up to his thoughts. Now, what does he think of his people who are under the blood of Christ? He wants to be an ever-present aid. He so desperately wants to give us salvation. He considers us righteous through our Savior. Do we dare then judge each other as unrighteous? Those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. We need to work on this. It's prophetic. It's about today. The sisters, the churches of the scattering, it's easy to criticize. It's easier to compare ourselves, easy to compare ourselves among them. And then we start coming up with names like the church of the very elect. So if you're in this group, you're very elect. Or other such names. We're the Philadelphia Church of God. The rest of you are Laodiceans. We're the living church. The rest of you are dead churches. It's easy to take these names, and by taking the very name, comparing ourselves among us ourselves, among the daughters. And yet God is the one who will make the judgment of who is the fairest of them all. And he tells us all to repent. I cannot but take that personal, brethren. It is so easy for us to criticize the church in the past, to criticize the ministry and whoever was in our area and what a jerk he was. It's real easy to go there. You can go there with me pretty easily. It's not a big deal. Easy to do. I'm a human being just like you are. I'm struggling every day just like you are. But it's so easy for us to criticize me or criticize each other and put each other down. And to what avail? How does that help? What good does it do? How does it help us be more like Christ 
and to be more prepared to be part of the kingdom of God. And to be part of that virgin that God chooses as the fairest of them all. We need to take this personal, each and every one of us, and not slander our own mother's son and our brother. Now, I know part of that is due to the high standard of God's Word that is set, and as we look around, it is so easy to see how people fall short of that. And then it is easy to criticize them for it, rather than loving them and helping them and strengthening them and encouraging them. You know, two negatives don't make a positive. That's a fact. When two negatives get together and start their little soliloquy about how bad so-and-so is, it does not come out positive. Two positives make a positive. Bear that in mind. When it's, so it's, it's so easy to get in a negative mood and find somebody else that you can talk about it with. Or vent or, you know... Whatever we choose to do. We all justify it by saying, well, I need to vent once in a while. Well, go vent to God. He can do something about it. Venting to your brother about your brother or your sister isn't going to help anybody. Including you, or the one you're venting to, or the one you're venting about. It isn't going to help anybody. Going to God and praying for one another can help. And if you want to spit some venting and some venom, go to God about it. Now that's the example in the Psalms. Where did David go? When he had enemies, when he had those who were persecuting him, when he had those trying to kill him, he got on his knees and talked to God. There's where you vent. You can let it all out with God. but not necessarily about your brother. Wouldn't you feel really rather foolish to be, go before God and single out an individual here, one of our brothers, and start telling God how bad that person is and how they've hurt you and harmed you and everything. And yet they're one of God's called out ones that He has set aside to be an example to the world and a light. And you're telling them how bad they are. Really, aren't you saying, Lord, you made a mistake with that one? Isn't that really, in effect, what you're saying? So we kind of temper it, I guess, when we go to God. But boy, we'll let it all hang out with each other, won't we? That's the wrong approach. Wrong way to go about it. That's what he tells us right here. I sat, I kept silence, he says, while you did this. And you thought I was just like you. You know, it's easy for us to think that God thinks just like us. He doesn't. Not any one of us. But I will reprove you and set them in order before your eyes. I will straighten you out, he says, and set things in order right in front of your eyes. That's scary. Now consider this, you that forget God lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. 
So while he says, if you'll be righteous, I will be your refuge, and I will use you as a light to the world, he says, at the same time, if you slander your brother and your mother's son, I will tear you in pieces. And no one will deliver you or be a refuge for you. Now, if you think I'm talking about you, and you're taking this personal, you are right. Every last one, including me. Whoso offers praise glorifies me. It is God's glory to cover sin. It is man, the, the honor of kings to ferret out and find evil. But God isn't like the kings of the earth. It's His glory to conceal and hide under the blood of Christ the faults and sins of others. So whoso offers praise glorifies God. Instead of talking against or about our brother and pointing out their faults, offer praise. Many of our grandmothers and mothers told us as we grew up, if you can't say good something good about somebody, don't say anything. Haven't we all heard that as we grew up? I did. Lo and behold, God says the same thing. Whoso offers praise glorifies me, and to him that orders his conduct aright will I show the salvation of God. So he's saying two things there. If you want salvation from God, glorify others or offer praise to others as a glorification of God, and you live right. It's that simple, and you'll find salvation. Be positive, be encouraging, say good things about others, and live your life the right way. It's all right there, encapsulated. Live by God's law and love your brother. How could he put it better? Let's stop there.